And there was a recent, uh, a couple years ago, there was a survey of 3,000 children, uh, both in the U.S. and the U.K., and the question was very simple. What do you want to be when you grow up? What is your most sought-after profession? And what they learned is that even more than being an astronaut or being the president or being uh, someone with great influence who makes a big difference in the world, the number one thing that these 3,000 kids wanted to be was a YouTube star. They wanted to be a YouTube star. And what they learned with this generation, of course, a lot of that is because those are their celebrities. Those are the ones that they, those are the people that they know and, and enjoy watching the most. But one of the things they're learning with this generation is that more than anything, kids are growing up in a world where they feel like you need to be famous. Like, that's really what they want to be. Whereas previous generations thought, I just want to provide. I want to make a difference. I want to do something meaningful with my life. Uh, my, I want to do what my dad does. I want to do what my mom does. This generation is kind of saying, I, I want to matter. Like, I want to be famous. Like, the one thing that this generation cannot endure is obscurity, not being seen, not noticing, not mattering, not standing out. They'll do whatever it takes. And, of course, I'm being general here. But generally speaking, according to this survey, they'll do whatever it takes to be famous. Now, their attitudes toward that will probably change as they grow. But as kids, they think that's what matters most, being famous. Of course, we hear it a lot from the world. You know, they say things like, if you're going to be, uh, if you're going to have a voice, you need to build a platform for your voice. You need to have an audience. And so there's lots of work that goes into building a social media presence and a platform, being what they call a social media, media influencer, where there are people who are famous for nothing other than the fact that they're on social media. And, 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 and brands and labels will pay them loads of money to wear their clothes in their Instagram posts because they're an influencer. And if they wear it and the people who follow them see them wearing it, then they got to run out to the store or jump onto Amazon and buy it. This is the world that we're in right now, gaining followers. And and the truth is, is that this mentality even is leaking into the Christian leadership world, where national leaders in the Christian faith movement are sort of being swept up in this need to have followers and to build a platform and to be an influencer. But have you ever noticed in the Christmas story, or maybe as you've read the Christmas story the last couple of days, Have you noticed how much obscurity there is in the Christmas story? There's not big platforms. There's not lots of followers. There's not tons of influence. There's a teenage girl named Mary living in a very insignificant place called Nazareth, married to a relatively, or engaged to a relatively insignificant man, Joseph. He just worked with his hands. He did sort of normal work. He was either a carpenter or a stone worker, but he wasn't a, he wasn't a governmental leader. He wasn't an influencer. These were just two teenagers who planned to live a very normal life, and an angel came into that moment of obscurity with this amazing announcement. Bethlehem, the place where Jesus was born, is considered the smallest of all. I mean, talk about obscure, and then not even room in the end. Jesus is born in basically a stable, and then the announcement of the king of the world is made not to the people with power and influence and, and big voices and big followings, but to shepherds who are outsiders and obscure. It's a story, I think, that if we, we miss this point, we miss one of the most important things. It's a story that is filled with obscurity. And then we get to the end of Luke chapter 2, and the obscurity of Jesus' existence becomes startling, stunning, I think. Because what happens in Luke 2 is the wise men come, the magi come from the east, right? They come seeking the king. They find Jesus. Now, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, not to ruin your nativity scenes, but the wise men were not there the same time as the shepherds. The shepherds came the day Jesus was born. The wise men came. Jesus was about two years old, okay? 
So at two years old, we have this story of Jesus. And then in Luke chapter 2, we have this brief little story about Jesus when he's 12 years old. He goes with his parents to Jerusalem for some sort of a religious feast, and he gets left behind, and they find him talking and teaching to the other rabbis, and they recognize something is unique about Jesus. And then it's like we don't hear anything. So with the exception of one little glimpse at 12 years old, we have 28 years of obscurity. 28 years, the Son of God is on the world, and nobody knows. <laughs> and we don't know very much at all about those years. And I want us to look at what we know about those years. This is kind of a strange text. I can, I'm pretty confident I've never preached from this passage before. But we're going to look at the very end of Luke chapter 2 and the very beginning of Luke chapter 3. But here's how Luke 2 ends. Jesus now it says, the last thing we know is he was 12 years old and he was in the temple. And then it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is about all we know for 28 years of Jesus' life. This one verse. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Chapter 2 ends, chapter 3 begins, and in chapter 3, he's now 30 years old. And it says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, sounds like something you don't want to get in your throat, right, Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. There's three things I want us to learn this morning. The message is simply called the gift of obscurity. The gift of obscurity. In a world that values celebrity, the kingdom of God is, wants to give you the gift of obscurity. And there's three things we're going to learn about the gift. And the first thing is this, that God sees people in obscurity. God sees people when no one else sees them. When no one seems to notice them, God sees people. And I want us to look back at the beginning of Luke chapter 3. Look at the names of the people who are listed here. By, by Luke is this master historian, so he's framing the story in the context of what was happening and who was ruling and who was powerful and who was important. And I read this verse a couple days ago, and it just jumped out at me like it never had before. Look at the important names. You have Caesar, He's the ruler of the Roman Empire. He's as important as it gets in this time in history. There's nobody more powerful than Tiberius Caesar. Then you have Pontius Pilate, who we're going to meet later in the story of Jesus, right? Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea, which is a big region. Then Herod, who we also will meet later, he's the tetrarch of Galilee. Herod's brother Philip, these are all leaders, influential governmental leaders who are over significant regions. Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. And then Luke points out that not only were there leaders from the Roman Empire at work in this time, but that there were religious powerful men too in the Jewish community. And he says the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So Luke lists all these important people in all these impressive places, but then he says this. But the word of the Lord came to John. And it's like Luke wants us to realize God bypassed all the powerful people, all the important people, all the influential people, everyone who thought that they were something, that had built a platform, that had gained influence, that had many followers. God knew they were all there. Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Annas, Caiaphas. But the word of the Lord came to John. Who's John? He's a nobody. Everybody thought he was crazy. 
Everybody thought he was out of his mind. He wore camel, camel hair and he ate locusts and honey. I don't know what you ate for Christmas yesterday, but I bet you did a little better than locusts and honey. This is what he was known for. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, who was a relatively insignificant priest. And where is he? Somewhere impressive? He's in the wilderness. See, God sees people in obscurity. John was a nobody from nowhere, but the word of the Lord came to him. Now, if you are familiar with Scripture, this is no big surprise that God would work this way. Because think about who God chose throughout the Old Testament. Right from the beginning, he would choose people that you wouldn't choose. He chose Isaac, who was sort of the, he was the son of promise, but he wasn't born until Abraham was 100 and, and Sarah was 90. And they already had a son named Ishmael, but Isaac was the one who was chosen because he was the son of blessing. And then Isaac had two sons. He had these twins, Esau and Jacob, and Esau was the older one. And the society back then was a society of primogeniture, which meant the oldest son was the one who always had the power and the influence and the blessing and the inheritance. And everybody else was left to fight over the scraps. But Jacob blessed Isaac, I'm sorry, Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau. And then Jacob has 12 sons, and the son of blessing that comes out of there is Joseph, who's one of the youngest. Then God chooses a man named Moses who never should have lived. He should have been killed because there was a genocidal Pharaoh who was trying to kill all the young Hebrew children. But Moses was spared by the hand of God and raised in the palace of Pharaoh. And then he should have been arrested and executed because he killed an Egyptian. But instead he ran into the wilderness where he should have wasted away. And for 40 years he stayed in the wilderness learning to be faithful as a shepherd. And God came to him in a burning bush moment and said, I need you to speak for me. And most people believe that Moses had a stuttering problem. He wasn't someone who you would choose to speak for anyone but that's how God does things then God chooses David the youngest brother so young so insignificant that when the prophet came to anoint the king they didn't even bring David in from the fields you stay out there and you watch the sheep because surely the oldest strongest son is the one who be chosen God chooses Gideon, who is not a warrior. He's not, in fact, when we, when we find Gideon in the book of Judges, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. And what that means is that he was in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. Threshing wheat was something you did up high so that the wind could blow away the chaff so that you would just be left with the kernels of grain. But he was in a wine press, which would be cut into the ground. And the reason why Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press is because he was afraid of the Midianites. Gideon was such a fearful man that he wouldn't even do what he was supposed to do in the right place. And yet God came to him and said, hey, mighty man of valor. Because God sees people in obscurity. When everybody else would look over them, God sees Ruth, a Moabite, who was, an, who was a widow and should have spent the rest of her life as a widow in a Gentile nation. But instead, she came back to the Jerusalem, or came back to uh, the Jewish area and became a tremendous woman of blessing, who, the line through which Jesus was born. God chose Esther, who was a woman in exile, who was chosen for a beauty pageant, but became a voice for justice. For his people. See, this is how God works, and can I just say, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is still how God works. God sees you. If you feel like you're in an obscure place, like you don't matter, you don't notice, life is passing you by, God knows exactly where you are, and he sees you. Yesterday, I made a, uh, a standing rib roast for Christmas, and the way I do it is I slow cook it. So I put it in the oven at like 220 for like, it was 11 pounds, so it was like five hours of slow cooking. It's a real nice, even cook. And then you take it out, you rest it, and you put it back in at 500, and you sear it, and then you cut it up, and then you just lose yourself in it. At least that's what I do. <laughs> and of course, you got to have the horseradish cream sauce and the au jus. And so that was our, that was our meal yesterday. Now I'm hungry because there's some leftovers at home that I'm thinking about right now. 
But, you know, if you're going to cook a piece of meat that big, you're very brave to do it without a meat thermometer. And I got this meat thermometer that's a Weber meat thermometer that syncs with an app on my phone. So I don't even have to open the oven to look at it. It, it tells me the temperature on my phone, and it alerts me when it hits the temperature that I want. Now, I barely use that meat thermometer because I'm not usually cooking standing rib roast. I use it maybe two to three times a year when I'm doing turkey for Thanksgiving, when I'm doing a rib roast, maybe when I'm doing like lamb for Easter. But when I go, I, I know exactly where that thermometer is because it's in the same place, and it sits there 360 days a year. <laughs> but I know when I need it, I know where to go to get it. And you may feel like you've been sitting on the sidelines for years, for months, for weeks. But God, the moment that God needs you, he knows where to find you. He will come and he will raise you up and he will elevate you into positions of influence. He will give you voice at the right time because God sees people in obscurity. What this means is, here's a big relief for us, we don't have to promote ourselves We don't have to position ourselves to be seen and celebrated. We don't have to go out and ask people to notice us because God sees us. When God needs you, he knows exactly where to find you, which means that we can trust that God sees you even when it seems that no one else does because God sees people in obscurity. The second thing that we learn in this passage is that God grows people in obscurity. It's said that Jesus increased Not that he stayed the same, certainly not that he decreased, but Jesus, for these 28 years, day after day after day, Jesus increased in wisdom. He grew in his understanding and his wisdom, but also in stature, which meant the person that he was becoming. Stature, I don't believe, just speaks of physical size, but even his emotional capacity, his his mental capacity, his spiritual capacity, his relational capacity, all of those things. Jesus is growing in all of these ways, 28 years, day after day, in obscurity, with nobody noticing him. He's increasing and growing, and in favor with God and with man. How many of you have learned that so much of God, so much of the life of faith is waiting on God's promises, waiting on his promises. We did, uh, coming up to Christmas, we did an advent calendar in our house, and it was a little LOL doll advent calendar, because that's my seven-year-old's favorite thing in the world is LOL dolls. And every morning we'd come downstairs, and she would open it up, and there was always a little piece of chocolate behind the little door that she opened up, which she would always eat, like breakfast of champions, right? A little piece of chocolate in the morning to get you going. And part of the reason why we did the advent calendar is because we thought maybe it would spare us some of the nonstop question asking about when Christmas is coming. We thought we were doing ourselves a favor by creating this advent calendar, but somehow it made it worse. <laughs> somehow, like, she just, now she wasn't just asking about Christmas, she was asking about her calendar. Like, when am I opening the next one? What's the next day? Is it is day number four? And it's just nonstop because she doesn't like to wait, right? And so the advent calendar is supposed to be this visual representation of the promise of Christmas, but she doesn't want to wait. She keeps asking and wondering, is it now? And sometimes I think some of you in this room, you have received promises from God. Maybe you've received a word from the Lord that's been spoken of your, over your life, and you're just kind of, you're that, you're, you're Madeline. You're just going, is it now? Is it tomorrow? When is it? Is it coming? <laughs> And so much of the life of faith is learning to wait and trust God in the in-between seasons. You know, when we read the Old Testament, all we really see are the mountaintop moments. But, you know, from when Moses left Egypt to when God spoke to Moses in the wilderness, 40 years. He waited for 40 years for God to call him into his destiny. And we don't want to wait for 40 minutes for anything. And yet, 
God, in the waiting, here's why we wait, because in the waiting, we grow. We grow. There's a Hillsong's Christmas album out that I've been listening to these last couple weeks, and there's a song on it called Seasons. And I love this line from it where they sing in the bridge, if you're not done working, God, then I'm not done waiting. That's the position of the Christian's heart. God, if you're not done working, then I'm not done waiting. I'll continue to wait and trust to see your hand. We receive the promise from God, but we don't always receive the timeline. We've been studying for the last month Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah said, unto us a child is born, a son is given. Right? Wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, God with us. And I'm sure the people of Judah who were in Babylonian captivity were like, that's awesome. When? 700 years. 700 years from when Isaiah wrote those words till Jesus was born. But in the obscurity, God grows us. In the waiting, God grows us. Some of us, as I said, have promises and word from God. We trust him with the when, and then we be faithful in the waiting and in the meantime. In obscurity, for me, when I think of obscurity, it's a place of preparation. You're the greatest athletes in the world who shine brightest on the biggest stages and on the fields and on the courts and in the moments where the cameras are pointed at them and the stadiums are filled watching them. If you were to ask every single one of those athletes, what prepared you for that moment to throw that pass, to catch that, to make that basket, to hit that ball, what prepared you? They would say it's the hundreds and hundreds of hours when there was no cameras, no lights, no crowd. It was Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, guys like that, by themselves shooting hundreds and hundreds of baskets day after day after day to develop. And it's in the obscure moments that we are prepared for the moments when we need it the most. It's the importance of preparation. And I don't know that, you know, in a a world where things happen so fast, I don't know that we value preparation. I think we value performance. Let's do it. But you can't perform without preparation. There's a famous quote by Abraham Lincoln, and every time I look at it, it's got a different amount of time in it, but this is the one I found yesterday. He said, if I only had an hour to chop down a tree, I would spend the first 45 minutes sharpening my ax. And the point of that being, there's preparation that needs to go into the performance. And it's in obscurity that we prepare. Listen, if you get out there in the moment of performance and the lights are on you and you're on the stage, it's too late to prepare. you got to know. If you're doing a stage production, recently my 10-year-old did a stage production at her school. If she didn't learn, you know, she spent a lot of time at home memorizing her lines, learning all of that stuff. If she waited till she was on stage to try and get ready to perform, it's far too late. We have to be ready with the preparation, and preparation often happens in obscurity. I always think of the, one of my favorite movies growing up was The Karate Kid, not the new ones, but the original ones, and, uh, you know, Daniel-san and Miyagi, and Ralph Macchio is the actor, and, and that's sort of like the whole training process that Miyagi put Daniel-san through, where he would say, paint the fence and sand the floor, and he doesn't understand what he's doing, and there's this climactic scene where Daniel is sick of doing chores for Miyagi. He just thinks he's basically fixing his house up for him, and he says, I'm sick of this. When am I going to learn karate? When am I going to learn how to fight? And Miyagi stands in front of him and begins to command him to do the different hand motions that he's been doing, paint the fence and sand the floor. And as he does it, Miyagi begins to attack him, and he realizes that he's been teaching him defense, defensive moves the entire time. Now, I don't know if that works. I don't think anyone else does that, but in the movie it worked. And so, but what, what, I, what I love about that scene is what felt like wasted time was preparation for the moment that was most important. I want to encourage us, because maybe you look back at 2021 and feel like it's filled with wasted moments and wasted opportunities and wasted time. But maybe God's preparing you. 
Maybe he's got you in a place where you're out of the spotlight so he can prepare you for when you are in it. Obscurity also doesn't just prepare our skills, but it prepares our heart. Because who you are when no one is looking at you is the most important thing about you. Who you are when no one sees you, who you are, that's what's most important about you. Obscurity teaches you that you're not too important for anything, that you should be able to serve anyone in anywhere, and that we should be faithful in the small things. It's best to grow in obscurity than to be, than to be promoted to celebrity before you're ready. I remember in 2015, March of 2015, I was asked to speak at a conference in Dallas, Texas, and it was a really big conference, and the main speakers are just these huge named people that you would know if I were to say them. And at that conference, they were releasing, the publishing company that was helping to sponsor this conference was releasing two, of, two books that I had written. And it was, so it was like this big release party, conference thing, and I'm there and I'm rubbing shoulders with all these other like big name speakers and, and the other books being released are by big name people. And there's David Hurtwig's book and I'm just like, oh man. And people are, uh, people are beginning to say to me, well, look at the trajectory of your ministry. Look at the trajectory of your life. Look at the influence you have and beginning to get invites to speak around the country. And I remember like starting to think like, this is it. This is my moment. This is like, I'm ready to soar. <laughs> And in one of the sessions, Christine Kane, who was one of the main session speakers, she said this, and out of everything I heard in that three-day conference, this is the only thing I walked away remembering, because I think this is what the Holy Spirit wanted me to hear. She said, if the light that is on you is brighter than the light that is in you, the light that is on you will destroy you. If the light that is on you is brighter than the light that is in you, then the light that is on you will destroy you. It was like the Holy Spirit was like, I brought you to Dallas to hear that. (laughs) Not to speak, not to sell books, not to be important. Because you got to realize you're in a dangerous moment in your life. Because here's what I think she was saying. If you love popularity more than you love Jesus, popularity will destroy you. If you love influence more than you love Jesus, influence will destroy you. If you love leadership more than you love Jesus, leadership will destroy you. If you love ministry more than you love Jesus, ministry will destroy you. And so in obscurity, God prepares us and he grows us for our good. Don't disdain obscurity as a waste or a stepping stone. Receive it as a gift. It's a gift from God. It's a place where God will grow you and prepare you out of the limelight for your good and his glory. And then the last thing, and Antonia, Pastor Antonia can come and join me. God doesn't just see people in obscurity. He doesn't just grow people in obscurity, but he loves people in obscurity. Did you notice in Luke 2, 52, it said that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. For those 28 years, here's what it means. Jesus was growing in favor with his father. In obscurity, Jesus gained the father's heart. And this is so counterintuitive. Here's what it means. Because you would think, well, yeah, from 30 to 33, when Jesus was out there teaching and doing miracles and, and, and healing people and walking on water and making more bread and more fish and turning water into wine, God the Father must have looked down and been like, look at my son. I'm so proud of him. The way that as parents, we're really proud of our kids, right? When they come home with a good grade or when they do something great in sports or on stage or, or, or get a good job, there's that pride, that the parental pride that rises up 
happened. So when I think of God the Father and God the Son, I'm tempted to think that for those last three years of Jesus' life, God was like, he's a little bit of a late bloomer, but he really finished strong. Like He did really great these last three years. But what this passage is saying is that for the 28 years where Jesus seemed to produce nothing, he grew in favor with God, which means this. God doesn't love you because of what you do for him. God doesn't even love you because of who you necessarily are. God loves you because of who he is. And even in obscurity, if you were to live 75 years and never be famous and never be known, and you know what? I've learned in my life, one of the lessons that I've learned in ministry is this. I want to be famous in my home. I don't need to be famous in this world. I don't need to be famous in Christian leadership circles. I want to be famous in my home, which means I want my I want my wife to want to be married to me 20 years from now. I want my, my children to love me and see who I am and see how I love Jesus and see how I try to serve Jesus by his grace. That's where I want to be famous, is right there with the people that God has entrusted me with. And God loves people in obscurity. It's the love of the Father. You don't need to be on a stage for the Father to love you. You don't need to be impressive for the Father to love you. You don't need to be a mighty evangelist for the Father to love you. He loves you because of who he is. And even in obscurity, we can grow in his favor and experience his blessing and his grace. So in closing, in 2022, here's what I hope we'll pray as a church. Three things. Number one, I don't need to be noticed by the crowd because, God, you notice me. Who is man that you are mindful of him, the psalmist said. God, I don't need other people to fill their minds with me because you fill your mind with me, and that's enough. I don't need to be seen by many. I only live for an audience of one. That's another thing to pray. And then lastly, I don't want to be famous. I don't have to be famous. I live to make you famous, that you would be seen that you would be glorified, that you would be lifted up, that you would be known, that your name would be made famous in my home, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my city, in this church, in this community. Jesus, because you're the one that we worship. You're the one that we live for. It's all from you. It's all about you. It's all for you. We live for his fame, not for our own. And so if we live that way, then when the rest of the world chases after celebrity, we can embrace obscurity. It's okay. We can embrace it, knowing that the God of the universe sees us, he grows us, and he loves us in those moments. Let's pray together.